This podcast episode has a content warning for rape and sexual assault. The more I wrote and the more command I developed over my voice and my ability for language, I started speaking back and I started poking holes in his gaslighting attempts by giving these very cogent, calm, clear-headed debates and using them against him until he was the one who was stammering and was out of words. I was there speaking very calmly and steadily against this man. He had his physical size. He had the money in our relationship. He had the legal upper hand. And I leaned into the one thing I could, which was my brain and my voice. Don't let this be just for today. Then you This is Season 1, Episode 3 of Migrations, a podcast about creative and political Asians and their story of migration. And I'm Nisha Modi, your host. Between last episode's interview with Tiffany Wong and this week's conversation with Rima Zaman, I am in awe of the depth and nuance of these stories. I'm amazed at how the experience of Asian immigration shapes us in so many different ways, yet there are also striking similarities. This is exactly why I wanted to start this podcast. If you haven't already, please check out the Migrations Patreon page to contribute to the creation of this podcast. You can pledge as little as $1 to as much as you'd like. And the more you pledge, the more you get. Check out the different levels to see how you can get a book picked by me and even a self-care package. Because let's face it, that's something all of us need like basically all of the time. Your contribution means so much to support a podcast that centers Asian voices. Please, pretty please, check out patreon.com slash migrations. That's M-I-G-R-A-S-I-A-N-S. Thank you so much for your support. And now for today's episode. Okay, so hi everyone. Today I'll be in conversation with Rima Zaman. Rima was born in Bangladesh, was raised in Thailand, and went to college in the United States where she currently resides. She is an award-winning writer, speaker, actress, and author of I Am Yours, a shared memoir. The New York Times accurately states that Zaman writes beautifully of the frustration and pain of being a woman in a man's world an immigrant in a world suspicious of outsiders. Forbes magazine has described Rima's career and life as a fabulous trajectory of powerful transformation. Rima was the 2018 Oregon Literary Arts Writer of Color Fellow and has been on the Dear Sugars podcast hosted by Cheryl Strayed and Steve Almond. You can find Rima on Twitter and Instagram at Rima Zaman and at www.rimazaman.com. Rima, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Nisha. Um, so Rima and I were actually supposed to record a couple weeks ago. Um, I was having a little technical difficulties, and she told me um, that she was actually going to be in L.A. in a couple weeks. So we are recording this IRL. 
So <laughs> super exciting. Very exciting. Um, can you tell us why you are in LA? What brought you here? I am here in town for some meetings and exciting dinners with some of my most favorite people. And I Am Yours has been adapted into a screenplay. And we are in the process of circulating that with our top choice producers. So everything's going really swimmingly, knock on wood. And I'm just in town to finalize all of those details and move into this next stage of this project and I guess my life. <laughs> yeah, that's super, super exciting. This project does have to do with your book itself, right? Your memoir, I Am Yours, yes. a shared memoir. So I call it the project because it's a 10-year affair. I knew from the moment I sat down to write, I had a very specific vision and plan and I, I made a business plan for 10 years starting from wow. 2013 to 2023 and it was a business plan as well as a creative plan of how I was going to execute this larger I Am Yours project in its various incarnations, beginning with the memoir, moving into the movie. Very cool. Thank you. That's awesome. A 10-year plan. That is very, very impressive. So what is the difference between a business plan and a creative plan? Well, for me, they had to be in alignment in order to pull this larger project off and so a business plan would be how to budget not only my finances but the amount of money I would need to bring in at every single stage of that creative process in order for me to be able to focus completely with total unflinching focus on this creative process. Wow, that's really impressive. I think that there's a stereotype that if someone's very creative, they're just like not savvy in business ways. I'm sure that might be true in certain instances, but you are proving that that's not true in all instances. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk a little bit about your memoir, I Am Yours? And can you also talk about why it's a shared memoir? Absolutely. So I Am Yours tells the story of my unwavering fight to protect and free my voice from the cultures and people who have tried to silence me. It travels the course of my life. It begins in Bangladesh, where I was born in 1983, the eldest child of an arranged marriage. And then we move into Thailand for my childhood and teenage years. And then it follows my immigration story to New York, America. The first act is about the childhood and teenage years in Bangladesh and Thailand. And then the second act focuses mainly on the centered relationship in the book is the marriage I had with my now ex-husband. He was an American man, and we met and fell swiftly in love rather quickly. I was 25 when we met, and by that time, I'd graduated college with a women's studies and theater degree. I was an actress in New York, and I was modeling here and there on the side. I had gone through a few sexual assaults and sexual harassment cases with employers. When he and I met, I was this you know young, bright-eyed actress, and he seemed like the safe space that I could call home. He was very charming and seductive and lavished me with attention and love, and I had never been loved in that way. He seemed to accept and be enamored of every part of me and I slipped into him with the sudden quick ease that a body slips into quicksand. He wanted all of me and that felt really, really wonderful. After going through a childhood and young adulthood where I had been sexually assaulted a few times, 
where I had had my voice as well as my body betrayed and silenced to be around this man who seemed to accept and want to create this safe haven for me, I was more than willing to fall into him. Lo and behold, that devourous love with which he enveloped me festered into this devourous need to control and own and have me almost as an extension as property, woman as property, wife as property. And he became very overbearing. I started to recognize that the same things that I had thought were seductive were actually these really controlling behaviors and the same kind of speech patterns which I had been conditioned to find attractive in a straight man were actually verbal abuse. This isn't particular to Bangladeshi or South Asian culture. In nearly every single culture, straight women are taught to orbit around a specific kind of quote-unquote seductive, larger-than-life straight man personality where he gets jealous and that's the sign that he loves you. He wants to take care of you, but it really teeters on the border of control and dominance. While I was in college, I had started playwriting because I was one of the classes I took and I wrote my first play and produced it and starred in it. It was my senior capsule project, which I did as a junior, and I was able to graduate early. And then while I was an actress, because I was so dissatisfied and unfulfilled by the roles that were offered to me, being a young actress of color, because everything I was asked to audition for were basically stereotypes because that's all that was available. My agents wanted better from me, and they kept on saying, you should write a one-woman show. That's when things <laughs> will really take off. And I'd be like, no, who would want to hear my story? <laughs> <laughs> to keep myself creatively satisfied and to not go crazy, I had started writing screenplays on the side just to keep myself occupied. Within this marriage, when I really started leaning into my writing, because within the relationship, the parameters of the relationships were such that if I wanted for him to be happy, it required the silencing of my opinions, which is to say my voice. There was space only for one voice in that marriage, and the voice had to be his. So my voice had to go somewhere else, and it came up on my laptop. I would wake up early in the morning so he wouldn't see me, he wouldn't catch me, and I started writing with this voracious appetite that I'd never really had before. And it was because my, and I believe it's the human instinct coming alive that in order to protect myself and nourish myself, I had to feed my voice and let it be expressed somehow. So it was through these secret pages that I would express it. And initially, I started writing because I knew instinctively that I needed to start creating real-time documentation were he to ever become physically violent and I would need my testimony in court. We were living in this completely off-the-grid, half-burnt barn. We had met in New York City, but as abusers are wont to do, he had found a way to get me away from civilization, literally, not metaphorically. We were literally living in a half-burnt barn that he had bought on a whim, saying that this was going to be the house of our dreams. And this half-burnt barn happened to be so remote that we didn't have cell reception. We 
had our own sewage system that we had put in with our own bare two hands. We didn't have any electricity initially. We would have to use the woods as our bathroom. We lived in a car for a while, and I started recognizing that I had willingly allowed myself to not only live off the grid, but live in a very precarious, physically dangerous, and geographically dangerous and secluded place with a man who wanted more and more control. I was writing all of this as documentation because there was literally nobody else around, not a soul for miles. And the documentation became really exciting for me. And I could feel that the more I wrote, I was starting to draw connections between him and the family that I was born into, which is my own family, the first marriage I was born into, which is my parents' marriage, my mother and father, and the first abusive relationship that I witnessed, which was theirs. And I began to see that the reason why this man, when I first met him, the reason he felt like home is because on a subterranean level, his abusive nature reminded me of my childhood home, of the way my father used to dominate and control my mother as well as me and my siblings. I had never really paused to examine, let alone heal that trauma. So of course, it had become my normalcy. And I had co-created a marriage that felt normal to me, a marriage that included a lot of rage, a lot of verbal abuse, a lot of manipulation, a lot of control. As I wrote all of this down, I started to gain confidence in my voice because having that safe haven as my writing was my nourishment and my fortification. And I began to speak in a much more confident manner, in an articulate manner with my now ex-husband, with my husband at that time. And he would look at me wide-eyed and he'd say, when did you start speaking so confidently? You are not the girl I married. And I would look at him and say, yes, you're right. You have actually always been this man. I am the one who's growing and changing. This is how abusers control. They use gaslighting. For anybody who's not familiar with that term, gaslighting is verbal abuse. The abuser twists language in their favor in order to make you feel dumb, subordinate, and crazy. Therefore, the more I wrote and the more command I developed over my voice and my ability for language, I started speaking back and I started poking holes in his gaslighting attempts by giving these very cogent, calm, clear-headed debates and using them against him until he was the one who was stammering and was out of words. And I was there speaking very calmly, steadily against this man. He had his physical size. He had the money in our relationship. He had the legal upper hand. And I leaned into the one thing I could, which was my brain and my voice. And it was the only way I could gain any control back in our marriage. And I started using my voice to overpower him in arguments that he would try to start. Because I grew into this woman who became intolerant and impervious to his gaslighting and intimidation tactics, he grew tired of me. The only way an abuser can continue to abuse is if they have someone to abuse. And I figured out that the three things an abuser wants is fear, anger, and the feeling of dominance, which is why they try to get us to cry and stammer and 
plead and beg and feel afraid of them. I stopped giving him any of those reactions until I literally became a kind of person he had nothing to leech off of. And he grew tired of me and he evicted me one day. He literally evicted me from our home and I wasn't allowed to come back into our house. I had poured all of my money, monthly wages into our mortgage, our leases. He called me up one day while I was babysitting because I used to babysit to supplement my acting income. And he told me, you're not allowed back home. I had my laptop. I had $60 that I would make that day. And I was euphoric because... I was finally released. One of the things he would hold over me as a gaslighting and intimidation tactic was I had immigrated to the United States on a student visa. And then after graduating from college, I applied for what's called the OPT visa. For those of you who don't know, an OPT visa is what foreign students we apply for and hopefully get. And it's called the Optical Practicum Training Visa. It's a year-long visa that you're provided after you graduate from college. It's supposed to be during that calendar year that you secure a stable income and job opportunities. Then you can get a work visa and live on in the United States. I used that time to get modeling and acting agents, and then it was my acting agents who would sponsor my subsequent visas. And so when I met my husband, I was on an actor visa. He was the one who said, let's apply for your green card through marriage and use all of the fees you would pay your lawyer and just funnel them back into our house and our lives together. And it felt like a wonderful proposition. And then lo and behold, I realized, oh my gosh, Rima, this means you are now indebted and tied to his name. Soon enough, the threat of deportation was something he would hold over me. On days that he was happy with me, he would call me his wife for realsies. And on days where you know, I would do the God forbid thing of speaking back to him. <laughs> he would call me his wife for greensies and he'd say immigration fraud is a federal offense and it would be terrible if you were to be reported. And I'd say, you know very well that we got married because we loved each other and then we applied for my green card. You were the one who wanted that to happen. He'd say, no, I don't remember that. So he would hold the threat of deportation over me and being that I am a women's studies major, I would just point it back to him. I'd say, you know, that's immigrant abuse. And he'd say, what's that? That's not an actual word. And I said, that's actually how language evolves. When you merge two independent words together in order to provide and illuminate a deeper nuanced truth, that's called intersectional feminism <laughs> or intersectionality in racism, in politics, in, in every field. And he would just scoff and just become dumbfounded. And I'd say, you are trying to use immigrant abuse over me. And immigrant abuse is when a person tries to use an immigrant's documented or undocumented legal status as a way to coerce, exploit, intimidate, or silence them. You are not allowed to do this to me. And of course, it only infuriated him more. Mm -hmm. Finally, because of that, because he would threaten me in that way, I knew that I couldn't initiate divorce on my own because his ego would be so inflamed I knew he would try to create trouble in my life legally, and I didn't want to risk that. And that's where I believe I Am Yours has resonated so much because it is a profoundly intersectional story, one that we haven't really examined in any other way. And that's why 
people are so excited to turn it into a movie because these are all the nuances about the immigrant life and the immigrant story as well as heterosexual relationships and intimate partner violence all of these intersectional overlapping threads that makes for a rather universal narrative my co-screenwriter her name is Dara Resnick she wrote for Transparent, for Amazon's I Love Dick, for 13 Reasons Why. She's brilliant. She says it beautifully. The specificity of my story, of Rima's story, is our universality. And I'm incredibly honored that the story has found so many people and they have found themselves in this story. Wow. There's so many inspiring and amazing things you just said. So many things that I personally can relate to as well. And yeah, I think that's the beauty of sharing these stories that are so nuanced and intersectional is to describe those actual struggles as an immigrant experience, as being a woman of color, etc. But also show the universality, which is a Mm -hmm. really kind of cool dichotomy. I was really moved by... The idea of your ex-husband initially feeling like a safe haven when in fact it was actually quite dangerous. I actually really relate to that with my own marriage, feeling some type of safety, confusing myself and convincing myself it was one way. Mm -hmm. I remember reading your memoir and almost seeing how it was romantic that you were sleeping in your car and it was romantic that you're in this bar far away. But then really it was quite dangerous. Right. Thank you also for talking about your experience as an immigrant going from Bangladesh and you were also in Thailand for some time, correct? We were. My father is now, he's retired, but he was a diplomat with the United Nations. And so that's where we were posted from 1989 through two years ago. He retired and moved to the States. But yeah, that's where I grew up from age six till 18 when I graduated high school. In terms of that immigrant experience, and also I just want to congratulate you here that recently Rima has a very big milestone if you want to tell everybody right uh literally day before yesterday I became an American citizen Yay! (laughs) and it was completely based on my own resume and role here in the United States not through a relationship not Mm. through an outside company through my own brand (laughs) through the Rima Zaman umbrella brand Yeah. yeah Yeah, that's amazing. I liked how you talked about the different visa process and the OPT, what that stood for. Mm -hmm. I've always seen those, but I actually never knew what the acronym stood for. Most people don't. Yeah. We were talking about this before we began recording, which is kind of fake woke culture, where it's really pop culture and sexy to be talking about immigrant politics and be really passionate about all of these things. But when you're somebody who's actually lived through it, there's so much nuance and poignancy and intimacy there's so many different details and struggles and battles at every single stage that can be really lost in the politicized narrative as well as the pop culture sensationalist narrative and I'm proud to be able to speak on all of these matters through a profoundly intimate personal lens and to bring accuracy to the table as well as nuance to the conversation. Definitely. Because for me, it's not a conversation. It is my life. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not just something that you're talking about. It is actually your reality. Exactly. That reminds me of the part in your book where you were in New York Mm -hmm. and you were raped. Yes. And you were not a citizen or you didn't even have your green card at that time. No, I was... 
I was on my OPT visa and I was violently raped by someone who was a colleague. He was an actor I knew from working in the same play and a few different plays together. After the rape, literally five minutes afterwards, I was just sitting there in the dark weighing my options as well as the financial and legal costs of each and the risks. And I did a profit and loss analysis of the different routes I could take. If I press charges, what that would mean in terms of my career, in terms of the stigma of like being part of this acting community, the small acting community in New York, because everyone knows each other. If I went down that route and he was a more established actor than me, did I want to risk this new burgeoning career that I had, especially as a foreigner? I was there on a one-year visa and I would need everyone on my side to be writing me letters of recommendation when I applied for my green card, all of those things. And did I really want to be known as, oh yeah, that's the actress who was raped a couple of months ago? Or did I want to be known as the young actress from Bangladesh who was doing fantastic work and yes we should recommend her on that Mm. and remember this was 10 years prior to Me Too it wasn't popular to be talking about these things you could be stigmatized and even to this day do you want to be known for your work or the assaults that men have placed on your body or I should say rapists have placed on your body and then also the financial profit and loss of going down a legal hassle Back then, because like most actors, I was juggling four different jobs. I was a hostess, I was a coat check girl, and I had a few different families that I used to babysit for. My income was cobbled together by rushing between different hourly paid jobs. And for me to take time out of that unsalaried position, I didn't have a salaried position by any means, for me to take time out of my life to go and pursue this legal case meant money the loss of money and the loss of money meant I wouldn't be able to pay rent it was all of these things and so I love talking about all of those tiny pedestrian details that can get overlooked in the popularized sensationalized conversation about hashtag me too so often the reason why women don't report and press charges is not fear per se, but because there is such a huge emotional and often professional and financial cost to think about, the risk to think about when you press charges. Is it really worth it, especially given the fact that we have a legal system that is so, so easily swayed and biased in favor of men and against women. What's the point is one of the reasons we choose not to press charges. Yeah, it is as heartbreaking as it is logical. And Mm -hmm. I'm just imagining you doing this profit and loss analysis in the wake of a very serious invasive trauma. Because the rape occurred in my apartment, my sublet, and... I just sat in the dark after he left and I just went through the different options for about five, ten minutes and I went through all the possible scenarios, how it would play out, the best case, the worst case, the worst case being that, you know, I would run out of money as well as I wouldn't have the correct 
professional portfolio and reputation to hold up for a green card process. Mm -hmm. And I would be sent back to Bangladesh, which would mean that I would not be sitting here as an established, admired author, screenwriter, actress, and activist talking about these issues because the only way for me to bring this career to life would be in the United States. Mm -hmm. I could not have pulled this off in Bangladesh. And I knew that in order to even arrive to the hypothetical place that I happen to now physically inhabit, those goals would never come into fruition were I to speak out at that point. And so it was this really bizarre, surreal, yet very real aha moment that I had, which is in order to be a voice for other women in the future, I would have to be silent in that moment as a 23-year-old. For me to build the career that I knew I had the potential to build, it required my silence as a young adult. Wow. And I think processing that trauma while this is all happening and there are so many decisions basically you have to kind of make within hours of this happening to you. Here's the nuanced and the intersectional part of what people may not be aware of. So in order for, because we say all the time, you know, your voice matters, your voice matters. And it is true. Every human being's voice matters. That said, for your voice to have true resonant impact, you need to have some semblance of clout. Clout can be derived in various ways, whether it's you have a skill set that only you and you alone can perform, you have talent or you have money or you have political power, you have a platform of some manner. I knew that me speaking out as this young 23-year-old, my voice wouldn't travel as far. It may not even get me to the point of being able to get that actor blacklisted. Mm -hmm. My voice did not matter then. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I had the beginning morsels of potential and talent to arrive to a place where my voice would carry, Mm -hmm. where it would be speaking into a microphone and be amplified on a larger social and political level. Mm -hmm. And that's when I wanted to speak my story when I had the correct microphone. So I knew that, yes, it was a very important story that I had been put inside because it's a resonant and unfortunately very universally applicable story. Six out of 10 women will be assaulted in their lifetime, and that's only the number that's reported. Therefore, we can pretty much guarantee it's more than six out of 10. So I knew that my story could be of benefit one day to help other women feel seen, to use my story and transform it into empowerment for other people. And so I I just, it was a very, like you said, like a very methodical and logical Mm -hmm. analysis of when to speak and how to speak. Yeah. um, Wow. And I I talk about my parents and the sacrifices they made and whatnot. And I don't think these are ever going to be the type of sacrifice that is actually seen by others. And this is a sacrifice that you sacrificed your voice so that you could amplify it more later when you had a larger stage. Exactly. It wouldn't have mattered then. Yeah. Nobody would have remembered that girl's story. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? And yet, yeah. and, but as a <laughs> chapter, as a chapter in my published memoir, people know it yeah. and it matters to them. It, the chapter is used as a vehicle of healing for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so finally the story matters. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it really is fascinating because it's these choices that we have to make right. for progress even though they might be hurting us along the way, holding that information in. But your time has come, and your stage is right in front of you, and that's beautiful. Thank you. I actually want to talk about your relationship with your father a little bit. You really detail it so beautifully in your memoir. I remember reading about how he kind of disowned you, and then he came back to you when you had this meeting. You know, I alluded to this. My parents had a very complicated marriage and I'm very close to both of them I'm close to my entire family we naturally are obsessed and in love with each other but then we've also done a lot of work of vulnerability and to have clear open communication channels I'm very proud of how far we've come especially as a family from South Asia I guess in any culture families aren't taught necessarily communication skills when it comes to talking about early trauma and the things we may have done to each other and how to survive that and heal from that and become closer by talking about all of those things. Anyway, so that's where we are presently. And I want to say that because it is a truly incredibly happy ending, Mm -hmm. which is actually a happy beginning. Our beginnings were very tough. My father grew up essentially without a father of his own. He lost his father when he was very young, when he was 11 years old. He didn't have a father growing up, and so he didn't have a model. He was raised in this very strict British boarding school, and they were both raised through the independence war in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. So they were raised with a significant amount of trauma themselves. Mm -hmm. We knew that as siblings, and we knew that our parents were very young when they had us. We talk about often that because my mother was raised to be ever-forgiving and compassionate and loving toward her husband, his trauma would pop up in the need to control her and overwhelm her as well as the rest of us. And only his voice had a say in the household. Her voice became invisible. And I became this person because I had to become this person. Mm -hmm. My mother wasn't allowed a voice in her own marriage, her first marriage. And so I stepped in. And as this young, riotous teenager, I started being her voice of anger. Mm -hmm. And I would stand up for her and try to protect her against my father and point out her rights and argue for those rights and I started telling her you deserve a life that's better you deserve to live beyond these walls you deserve to pursue your education she's an incredibly educated woman she went into labor with me while she was doing her final exams in Shakespeare and literature and I interrupted her potential you know literally She was studying to become an English professor, and then she got pregnant with me. She was married off, and she got pregnant with me. And I kept on saying, we cannot be enough in a very good way. You deserve to do all the things, not only be a mother. Mm -hmm. We are not your full story. I advocated for their divorce, and I championed her voice, and I began speaking back to my father violently using my voice, you know. He did not forgive me for that. We've come to terms since then, but he would always say, were it not for you, your mother wouldn't have left me, and I'd say, I know, I'm very proud of that. And he Mm -hmm. disowned me because of that. Mm. That was for a brief period of time in college, and then he re-owned me. 
<laughs> I remember thinking, wow, that's really something. Is is it possible to do that? I guess that infers that children or perhaps girl children are property. Anyway, I always found that to be fascinating. And that's why I wrote about it because it's all mm-hmm. very intertwined. Yeah, this concept of ownership and very much patriarchal so. and paternal culture. Right, exactly. And yeah. We had a lot of work to do and healing to do, and I'm proud to say that we have. Initially, my family was very scared of what the memoir could be about, and I said, well, I'm not writing it to destroy us. I'm actually writing it as a way to give our family a possibility for rebirth. Mm-hmm. And the book was an examination into my story, into my father's story, into my mother's story, in order for us to gain deeper compassion and understanding of each other so that we could return home to each other. Yeah, that to me is true ancestral healing. Thank you. Even though you say you interrupted your mom during her studies by being born, (laughs) you were also her answer. And I think that is... Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. So beautiful and wonderful and a testament to how healing is always possible, even in cultures where we might think that it isn't, you know? Right. My publishers were so lovely to give me seven pages worth of acknowledgments. And each person, my family gets a paragraph. And I say to each person, this book was a love letter to celebrate or honor our relationship. Because it's true, we really have come so far. And ancestral healing is more than possible. If my family was able to do it, then any family honestly can. Definitely. When we were first talking, when we tried to record the podcast the first time, that the migration story doesn't end. It continues. It does. Yes. So many endings and beginnings happening simultaneously. But on that note, I think we can close out. I think that was (laughs) such a beautiful story that you just shared. So many things that you hit on in terms of intimate partner violence, the struggles as an immigrant in this country, the hidden struggles, family relationships and healing and I cannot wait to see how this movie ends up turning out. I will be at the theater. And <laughs> I am not the so type of person much. that goes and gets the ticket right away, but I will. On midnight? For this. Yes. No, I am not. fateful yeah. Thursday and Friday. <laughs> yeah. I has... crawl in bed at 930, but I will be there at midnight and I will have <laughs> oh, like a five hour so energy much. and I will do that. So and thank I really, you so much. Thank you so much. And I really love, I'm going to hold that with me, that we are each other's rebirth and answer And we are always on the cusp of a new beginning. That is what it is to be human, to be ever-evolving. Yes. Thank you so much, Rima, for your time and for your energy and for your words. Thank you, Nisha. There were so many important themes that Rima discussed, and I don't think that the fears around sexual violence and immigration status can be emphasized enough. Rima's rape is just one of countless acts of sexual violence that women of color, especially those who are not citizens, face. A 2007 article, Sexual Violence Against Adolescent Girls, Influences of Immigration and Acculturation, in the journal Violence Against Women, investigated associations between immigration and acculturation with sexual assault in a large sample of high school girls. They found that being an immigrant was associated with recurring sexual assault victimization more than twice as much as non-immigrants. Another paper, They Talk Like That But We Keep Working, Sexual Harassment and Sexual Assault Experiences Among Mexican Indigenous Farmworker Women in Oregon in the Journal of Immigrant and Minority Health used community-based participatory research, a type of research that involves community members in all aspects of the research process, in terms of discussions during focus group interviews and decision-making. The paper states that, in the farm work setting, women who did not speak Spanish or English 
were more vulnerable to harassment, sexual or otherwise. Poverty was identified as a key reason why women tolerated sexual harassment in order to better their situation at work. VAWNet, a project of the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence, has a helpful section on sexual violence in immigrant communities. Many acts of sexual violence occur during the process of immigration in the form of sex trafficking, sexual assault in detention centers, and refugee camps. Check out this resource to find out more information, including ways to support these communities. I'll include a link in the show notes. While I don't mean to go all ivory tower on you, I just want to talk about how this research is critical to creating policy and increasing awareness around this issue. Only by conducting this research and sharing our stories can we educate, empower, and advocate for those that are more vulnerable. I'll include all of these articles and resources in the show notes. Please follow Rima on Twitter and Instagram at Rima Zaman and visit her website at www.rimazaman.com. As usual, I want to thank my $20 a month and above Patreon patrons. Thank you to my brother and Dahlia Guerin for their support. Please visit the Patreon page to contribute. Thank you to Tiffany Wong for creating the cover art and Shin Kawasaki for the song Find Another Way. And last but not least, thanks to Akriti Kundu for your editing prowess. Until next time, 